Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. This podcast is brought to you by SAP Pioneer. Hello and welcome, listeners. Last episode, we looked at why Australia's open banking system is, after five years, still to get going. Well, this episode, we are moving to India and the Philippines, where the story couldn't be more different. There are obvious business cases for open banking to start with, and the rationale is more about opportunity. That's opportunity to get a bank account for the first time, or a credit card, or verify your identity. And our first guest to talk about this is Smita Agarwal. She has a long background in financial inclusion, which is just the area where open banking is set to make the most difference. She's a Harvard Business School alumni, a guest lecturer at Stern Business School in New York, and for three decades, she has worked for some of the biggest banks in India, including the Reserve. Today, she's on the other side of the corporate rope, advising USVC Flourish Ventures, doing her own angel investing and sitting on boards of fintechs like Ugro Capital. Thank you very much for joining us, Smita. Thank you so much for having me here. It's my pleasure and delight to be part of this. I'd like to open by repeating something you said in our first conversation about the key building blocks of a digital economy. These are digital payments because they keep money moving quickly throughout a country's economy, uh, identities for everyone, regardless of whether they qualify for a bank account, and data sharing, which, done well, can overcome a lack of trust and information asymmetries. These are the foundations of India's open banking system and are creating this amazing ubiquitous access to finance. So why do you think countries like India stand to benefit the most from these innovations? I think emerging economies stand to benefit more than advanced ones because they tend to have lower levels of financial inclusion and less financial depth. So there is a lot more white space that is there to cover. In, in developing countries, which could actually unlock uh, the, the open banking and the open finance thing could unlock a lot more potential in these countries compared to the developed countries where it could where it's much more around marginal improvements in product innovation, product design, better competition, newer categories of players coming. So it's it's a it's a different order of magnitude problem that is being addressed, and I think the the developing countries stand a lot more to gain. You make it so clear that open banking really does solve so many more obvious problems in an emerging economy. Yes, and let me here highlight the notion of embedded finance. You know, so traditionally, financial services and banking have been delivered through specialized institutions but you know while there have been very good reasons for doing so it has also been one of the limitation in making it in reaching uh, financial services to everyone with digitization there is now an opportunity to make financial services available at a cost and in a manner even to the smallest and the remotest of customer 
And I think it's important. And that's where the whole idea of embedded finance, where you're embedding financial products as part of other real life use cases. When you shop for groceries in real time, there's credit assessment that is done on you and an offer is made for you to pay it in installments. So embedded finance allows contextual products when you need them and where you need them. Southeast Asia uh, countries like Indonesia have very low banking penetration. But on the other hand, they have one of the fastest growing and thriving digital economy led by many super apps like GoTo, Grab, uh, Shopee. And, and for many customers in Indonesia, interestingly, their first exposure to a financial product like credit or insurance is through the Gojek app and not a bank. So that's the magic of embedded finance that is possible through open finance APIs. In our first episode, we were riffing with Brett King about the futuristic possibilities that embedded finance could offer. And I really love the idea that open banking-based financial inclusion is already allowing people to leapfrog into that future. But I'm also really interested in the way businesses are benefiting from this shift in thinking about finance and data. So could you go into this a little bit for us? Absolutely right. And so let me illustrate this with with an example. So MSME is a very, very large sector in India, uh, which contributes significantly to the GDP as well as is a large employer. But it has been traditionally ignored or has been underserved by the formal financial sector due to lack of verifiable income data. Today, through an open API architecture, the goods and sales tax data of every MSME can be accessed that allows their sales and revenue to be reliably estimated along with granular details. And that combined with banking data again sourced through open APIs provides a robust credit underwriting and monitoring mechanism for a customer segment that was excluded from getting access to much needed affordable credit. And we've already seen this play out. You know, for example, the credit to MSME has reached 1.6 times of pre-pandemic levels this year. So the largest use case of open finance clearly in credit deficit countries like India and much of developing Asia is really loan applications for individuals and SMEs. And this is a very compelling use case to see the immediate gains of implementing an open finance framework. How did India manage to crack open those data banks? Because it's not exactly an economy known for its flexibility. Really speaking, if you look at, along with increased penetration of mobile phones and then there was a rapid drop in data costs, India embarked on its digital journey, if you will, seven to eight years ago. As per Findex 2014, India was at 53% bank account penetration at that point of time. And then, you know, using that same analogy of key building blocks, India actually had Aadhaar as the foundational digital identity layer. And then it had, it created real-time interoperable payments rails, which is UPI, Unified Payment Interface. And next, India is re-architecting data flows from the current organization-centric approach to an individual-centric model. It is empowering the individuals to own, control, and use their data by enacting a consent framework. And I think the big uh, uh, relevance of a consent 
framework is it gives control to the individuals too uh, over their own data that resides with banks, insurance companies, utilities, healthcare providers, government departments. As part of this uh, initiative, a new category of licensed entities called account aggregators have been created. They provide a standardized mechanism for sharing data between individuals and institutions in a secure manner. It's still early days, but I believe nearly 2 million accounts have already been onboarded and linked. And I think it's important to note that this initiative is not just restricted to the banking data. It spans across a range of data custodians, as I mentioned, insurance companies, mutual funds, tax authorities, and much more. And so it is actually an an all-encompassing way to allow the citizens who are now potentially more data rich than they are economically rich uh, to leverage that for their own benefits. You've worked across major banks in India and for the Bank of India at one point. So you know the internal processes and the internal politics. How challenging was it to bring the incumbents along and have them make space for those aggregators? How challenging was it to wrangle that regulatory apparatus into doing something that is worldly? I think you're you're absolutely right in underscoring the challenge and difficulty in pulling something like this together. But I must say that during the pandemic, it was evident that where digital systems worked effectively and served all people, they helped reduce inequality. So from a policymaker and regulatory standpoint, there is the inclusion agenda, which is quite uh, clear and it gets fulfilled through open banking. However, in addition, I do believe that there is a strong business case for banks, FIs, various incumbents, fintechs, and startups as well. You know, providing a standardized mechanism for sharing data between individuals and institutions in a secure manner leads to uh, lower customer acquisition costs, lower frauds, uh, uh, lower transaction processing costs, much better efficiencies, and which in turn leads to the expansion of the market. This is already evident in India. Having said that, I must admit that it is true that markets in which there are a handful of dominant players, there is initial resistance to collaborate. So are the large incumbents now banking this? Or are they being dragged, kicking and screaming? So, you know, if you see the the when the interoperable uh, payments switch, the UPI was introduced, the largest bank in the country was the last one to join. It's always the biggest It always one. is. And uh, having said that, it is now very evident that the amount of expansion that has happened in the entire digital payment space, for example, there was no way that could have got had that kind of speed and momentum without, you know, without everybody coming together. So some of these efforts, they t- take much longer. It is a challenge to align individual incentives with the ecosystem incentives. But I think the 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 benefit of it is becoming more and more evident, especially, I think, in emerging markets. In fact, I, you know, according to a McKinsey report, the boost to the economy from broad adoption of open data systems could be as high as one and a half percent of GDP in 2030 for countries like, you know, UK, US, but it could be as much as four to five percent in India. 
Yeah, wow, 4 to 5% could be a game changer. I'd like to know as well how far India is going to take this, because for a lot of countries, banking is not the end point. So how far is India going? The tax data is already being integrated. There is already initiatives being made in India to create a health stack that allows for aggregation of health data. So absolutely, I think uh, uh, India is essentially thinking much beyond banking data because the banking data is not fully representative about the of the financial lives of individuals utilities data for example your electricity bills your phone bills that data has much higher frequency uh, and longer uh, uh, um, data sets are available uh, so there is absolutely a uh, 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 the objective of in integrating as many data sources that could help in uh, in providing better services to every citizen of the country. When we first spoke ahead of recording this interview, you were telling me about the opportunities open banking is creating around access to credit in India and how it's moving lending out of these informal backrooms for everyone from individuals to micro, small and medium businesses, that's MSMEs. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So let me talk about MSMEs as well as individuals. So about MSMEs, uh, historically, all kinds of MSME or corporate lending would only be based on collateral or security. You know, so it, it was primarily asset-backed lending. Now, there's a very large segment of MSMEs that, would, that do not have asset to provide as collateral. Uh, or even if they do have an asset like a property or a shop or a home, uh, they may not have a perfect title that is acceptable to the lender. And therefore, they were excluded from this whole opportunity of getting uh, finance from the formal financial lenders. Their needs most often would get met by informal lenders or none at all. And I think that has completely changed because of the access to the GSD data and the banking data, which allows for their cash flows to be verified. And, and therefore, the lending is now shifting from asset-backed lending to cash flow-based lending, where you have visibility of the cash flows and the sales and the revenue of a MSME, and you're using that to underwrite and uh, determine the eligibility. That's a huge shift, and that suddenly opens up the eligibility to a very large segment that was completely excluded. Similarly, on the individual side, the primary eligibility criteria used to be the bureau score. You know, if you have borrowed before, what's your uh, uh, credit bureau score? But in India, only, you know, less than 20% of adults had a bureau score. That doesn't mean that the rest were uh, not credit worthy. It's just that they didn't have any uh, uh, method to prove their credit worthiness. And by opening up access to alternative data and banking data and utilities data, you're now creating a new form of underwriting method to 
provide credit to what I would call as new to credit customers. These are first-time borrowers who come into the formal financial network through this uh, method and are then able to improve their credit scores and build their credit history over time and become um, beneficiaries of the full range of financial products that are available. Moving away from India, which countries in the region do you think would benefit from a shift or a greater shift to open banking? Indonesia would be a great example. So in Indonesia, the banking penetration is close to 50%, but the digital economy is is really robust. So you have, you know, a very high number of people who would be shopping online, would be spending online, would be having a digital wallet, but would not have access to a a range of financial and banking products. Bangladesh would be another example with very low banking penetration, but very high internet usage. And these are economies that are underlying having strong growth, very high digitization, and there is a real opportunity to unlock the financial services access by making the data more accessible and giving the customers better control over their data. We're seeing the emergence of neobanks targeting specific groups who traditionally have been financially excluded, such as Totem for Native Americans in the U.S., In an ideal open banking world, will these niche banks be necessary, particularly in markets like the ones that we've been talking about in Asia? That's an interesting question. So so the idea of having niche banks is really about optimizing your go-to market and product suite to cater to uh, a certain customer segment. So in markets where niche segments are large enough, I believe one would still see segment-focused initiatives as they go deeper into the context of the customer and offer a complete range of financial as well as non-financial tools to cater to that customer segment. So, you know, for example, I have, you know, I sit on the board of a company in Bangladesh, ShopUp, whose target customer segment is the small merchant of the corner store. And, and their objective is that I want to cater to this merchant and offer the full range of, so, you know, be it their sourcing, be it working capital credit, be it delivery, logistics. We are here to provide their full range of solutions that this segment requires. So you will still have open APIs and partnerships being stitched together to offer that, but it makes sense to have that niche focus because A, that segment is really large uh, and it warrants a different approach. Um, So you might see this differently panning out in different countries, depending upon the size and scale of those niche segments. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this and um, thank you very much. Now a few words about our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. For many of you from banks or insurers listening to this podcast, it's easy to get excited about the innovation we're talking about, but it can be daunting taking the digital leap. How can you build or upgrade to the latest technology to deliver all that competitive edge without risking, literally in some cases, breaking the bank? 
Well, launched as the financial services spin-off from SAP, Finear offers the best of both worlds, combining the agility of a startup with the experience of a best-in-class software company. That means future-fit technology that gets you to market fast combined with reliability and scalability. So if you're looking for a new fintech who's a safe pair of hands, check out sapfinear.com. Our next guest is Todd Schweitzer. Welcome, Todd. I'm going to ask you to do the intro today. Sure. My name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Broncos. We're an open finance technology company operating across Asia. Uh, I grew up in California, actually in Joshua Tree, for those who have visited uh, kind of the funky areas of California. And I've been in Southeast Asia now, kind of hopping between Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, and Manila for about eight years now. Tell us about Broncos, why you started it and what you bring to the open banking market in Asia. So I think, so Broncos is a technology company that does two things. Number one, we work with banks and other non-bank financial institutions in Southeast Asia to help them become API ready. And then the second thing we do is provide aggregated APIs or open the kind of the more traditional open finance products to startups, neobanks, e-wallets, online lenders, and anyone else that wants to plug in some kind of embedded finance solution for data, for payments, or even kind of version one banking as a service, like account opening or card issuance. What is the business case for open banking in the locations where you operate? What I think is so interesting about open banking in emerging economies, and especially uh, places like Indonesia and the Philippines, is you're actually addressing fundamental infrastructure gaps, right? So unlike Australia or the US or the UK, you don't really have reliable credit bureaus. So the AIS or account information sharing model actually solves for identity verification and credit risk assessment or credit scoring um, as a kind of an alternative method, right? So it's much more than simply just linking your accounts for a budgeting app. It's actually unlocking you know, proper credit risk assessment and, and hopefully underwriting in a more efficient environment. But also, there is a large commercial use case for the banks. More and more financial institutions are looking to publish API products because they actually see a business case for it. And especially in an archipelago like Indonesia or the Philippines, you can actually reach customers, mass market consumers, small businesses in kind of far-flung provinces without needing to build a branch, without needing to run cash trucks, because you can plug in an API to a third-party app that can reach those customers on your behalf. You've flipped a couple of times between using the terms open banking and open finance. So which do you prefer as being more accurate for what you're doing? So open banking was a term that came out of the UK and it came out of a regulatory requirement, i.e. the UK government requiring the banks, the large banks, to publish certain API services for the benefit of competition and kind of consumer choice, especially when you apply that to a place like Southeast Asia, that term, I think, is less accurate in describing the ecosystem. Number one, because there isn't a regulatory requirement. So there is no open banking top-down requirement. There are bits and pieces, right? So in Indonesia, 
you have very clear payment API regulations now. In in Philippines, there is an open finance oversight committee under the central bank now. So there, the, the gears are in motion, but it's not a, it's not a copy of the UK open banking model. I think it's taking a different form. But number two, and more importantly, the first movers and the most exciting activities in open banking, open finance today are actually being led by non-bank financial service providers. It's the e-wallets, it's the online lenders, it's the payment solutions companies, it's the alternative credit scoring and credit risk assessment providers that are filling in these gaps in infrastructure, but they're not banks, right? So I think we 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 lean towards the open finance definition really simply because the players in open finance are are a broader set than simply banks. I'd like to go next to data breaches. There have been some massive data breaches this year across the region. You've got Singtel in Singapore, you've got Singtel's Australian subsidiary Optus, Shangri-La Hotel Group in Hong Kong. That's just October. So are you seeing any hesitancy on the part of banks in the region to engage with open banking due to data breaches or the risk of data breaches? Because now you have financial data that is accessible to so many new players. Yeah, it's a great question and it's very timely in light of recent um, breaches, especially in Australia. I would say even before the the recent data breaches, I mean, companies, whether it's financial institutions or retailers or telcos, increasingly data security is top of mind and it's a CEO or board level matter, not simply an IT or, or DPO matter. You know, and, and open finance is no different. Um, in fact, I would argue that that open finance, in some ways, is less of a concern for two reasons. Number one, a company like Broncos that is aggregating and 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 transmitting consented data. Number one, we are getting customers' consent for a specific activity. And number two, a company like Broncos is not storing any customer data. We are providing the API pipe so that when a customer gives consent, they can move their data or share a copy of that data from party A to party B, right? But Broncos very deliberately, very explicitly, and we are audited against this, we are not storing customer data, one, because we don't want that additional risk of having a database of sensitive customer data. And number two, because a lot of our customers are banks and lenders who would prefer that we do not build profiles on their customers for competitive concerns, which is a fair concern. So what Broncos does quite deliberately is says, we are not building a database of your customers. We are simply allowing your customers to link their accounts when they choose. You're the pipes. We're the pipes, but we are not, we are not kind of making a copy of the contents of that pipe. To that point, I think as the open finance industry is more and more regulated, which is a good thing because customers need that protection, and also different industry participants need to know who the the, the secure actors are. How can they know who those trustworthy actors are, though? Last episode, we were talking about how Australia is creating these legislated rules around cybersecurity and open banking. What's the story in the countries where you operate? So, for example, in the Philippines, Broncos is proactively registered um, with the National Privacy Commission and basically following the data protection and customer consent guidelines that the National Privacy Commission has, has laid out. 
And that's a real benefit in the Philippines because that is a single central agency across government that defines the overall data protection standards. Now, that the Philippines is a bit unique in Southeast Asia for having this central body, and it, it's to their credit. Indonesia, it's a work in progress. So there is a personal data protection legislation that is tabled in the, in the Congress now. And then the securities regulator and Bank Indonesia are both working on financial data protection standards. Um, but that's certainly a work in progress. But I think there's another piece too, which is industry self-governance, right? So Broncos is working. We proactively registered for PCI DSS, which is a it's actually for secure card handling for credit cards and debit cards, but it's a great standard for an auditable standard for making sure that we're securely handling customer credentials, right? And we apply the same methodology that card processors use as we're using consented bank data. The, and then there are industry groups coming up. So like the Open Banking Exchange out of Europe that's setting standards for open banking providers. And then out of the US, a number of open banking and cybersecurity firms have come together for the Open Finance Data Security Standards, OFDSS, which is really an attempt at a single global industry point of view on the standards that we open finance technology providers should hold ourselves to. And that I think is really valuable. There's not one single action, but I think we can take some deliberate steps in terms of our operating model, take some deliberate steps in terms of proactive self-regulation and industry advocacy to say, we, the participants of the open finance industry, we hold ourselves to this standard and we think other players should as well. Given that range of regulatory environments for open banking and the growing number of participants, and given that industry-led governance, what would you like to see regulators do to ensure a robust environment for open banking? That is a great question and a controversial one because a large traditional bank and a neobank and a fintech and an open finance aggregator will have different points of view that, that can be seen as contradictory. But what would you like to see? I would like to see a pro-consumer, pro-innovation agenda. What that looks like is an agenda that starts with the principles of, are we enabling competition? Are we enabling consumer choice? And are we enabling the next generation of technology companies that are going to solve problems of financial access, financial inclusion, um, information asymmetry? The reason I bring this up is Philippines is 50% unbanked. Indonesia is somewhere between 40 and 70% unbanked, depending on, 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 on whose metrics you're, you're, you're reading. In Vietnam, roughly the same. We have a massive financial access and financial inclusion gap and providing the infrastructure so that the next generation of technology companies can use open finance to build new products to serve customer groups that the incumbents have neglected, I think is critical for economic development. It's critical for competition in financial services in a region where the, the net income is the highest in the world among a lot of the leading banks. And I think this is where UK open banking came from. If you if you look at the background of why open banking UK started, even in a very developed, very mature market for financial services, the UK regulators recognized that there was limited competition for consumers and SMEs. So it started from a it started from a premise of 
we need to encourage new product development, competition for customer groups that today are kind of stale, and then the customer loses out and you slip into rent-seeking behavior. And so that's what I care about. Now, of course, we need to manage risks on data security. We need to manage the risks for new technology. We need to ensure you know, financial sector sector stability, and especially in a in a macro environment with rising interest rates and you know and 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 possibly declining GDP, right? So I recognize that there are bigger fish to fry from the regulator's perspective, but in terms of technology innovation support and supervision, I think open finance can really be an enabler, and I would like to see regulators take a pro innovation, pro consumer approach, in even if that means piloting certain technologies that may be considered new, unfamiliar, if that enables economic empowerment for, for you know, tens of millions of Filipinos and Indonesians, I think that's net positive. I'm going to get you to nail your colours to the mast here. When you say you'd like regulators to take an innovation-first, tech-friendly approach, what's something specific you'd like to see happen? We are in an environment today where practically zero banks have APIs available in Southeast Asia markets, right? You may have one or two first movers that have developed some kind of API platform and good on them, and they are able to acquire customers and earn revenue uh, and, and build engagement with their consumer and SME customers faster than the rest, right? But they're still early adopters. If the regulator is going to require banks to become publishers of APIs for data, for payments, or for other services, that is going to be a two, three, four, five-year journey. And so what can the regulator do in the interim prior to bank APIs becoming available? And the answer to that is what we've seen in other markets like Australia, like the UK, like European Union, which is you allow versions of bots, screen scraping, web automation, there are other terms for it, but you allow customers to still access and share their data, even if the bank does not have an API that works or is still in the process of building it. And we've seen this movie over and over again, where the European regulators have said, they call it a fallback mechanism. That's the term of art they use, which is, if a bank is not maintaining a working API, the consumer should still be able to access their data and share that data with their consent. And so we need these fallback mechanisms in place with secure RPA or secure screen scraping methods. And we're five, six years into open banking. So we, we know what the secure and best practices are. So I'd like to see those applied as an interim and a fallback solution prior to the banks having functional APIs. Because if not, we're just stopping the whole open finance economy for years while cajoling and building an enforcement mechanism and waiting for the banks to develop their IT stacks to support open finance. So screen scraping is now a very dirty word in Australia because of that lack of security where you have to hand over your login details. So what can you do at Brancus to calm those regulatory and banker nerves on this issue? Again, applied securely, screen scraping is no less secure than any other form of a customer giving consent or sharing their credentials online, whether they are logging into their bank app or whether they are using their credit card and saving their credit card details on an e-commerce site or any other time when they're entering personal identifiable information or other sensitive personal data, right? So I don't think 
unfortunately, you know, scra- screen scraping, scraping, no one wants to be scraped, right? It's like an abrasive, violent term. But we use it every day. When you book a flight on a travel age aggregator and you're inputting your flight details and your name and your passport information, the bot on the aggregator is inputting that detail into the airline's website and booking the flight on your behalf. That's how it works, right? There's a company, UiPath, which is you know, a multi-billion dollar company, IPO'd two years ago, and their entire business is running RPA to automate manual activities for clients in insurance, healthcare, financial services, retail, telco. We use bots. There's a company, Do Not Pay, in the US um, that its entire business is running automated legal filings for things like requesting a copy of your tax records or you know, exiting a, you know, exiting a a subscription, a software subscription that requires some paperwork to do so. So we use and give our consent for bots to do things on our behalf, practically every day. I would say of us on this call, we've all used a service like that probably in the last week or so, right? The important thing to think about in open finance is we all want an ideal world where All the major banks are managing very high-performing, scalable APIs that work all the time, even during peak periods, and have complete data that customers can use to do what they want with it, right? But that is not a world that we live in today that does not reflect reality. And even in markets like Europe and the UK, which are five years into open banking, we still have to have some version of secure RPA or scraping as a fallback mechanism. So I think we can work towards an ideal and we can learn from best practices on how we get to that ideal. But I think we also need to recognize that if the intent of open finance is to empower the consumer, then we need to provide options so that that consumer can still do what they want to do with open finance. Let's talk about how open banking is being used and could be used. In markets like Australia and the UK and the EU, Open banking is more about privacy and competition. But in markets like the Philippines and India and Indonesia where you play, it's more about opportunity and accessing basic banking. One of the most powerful use cases that I can see is access to credit. Would you say this is the market opportunity in the countries you operate in? Yeah, so you're absolutely correct, Rachel. The the commercial opportunity for open finance in emerging economies, I think, is much more interesting than in places like the US or Australia, because you're solving some of these core gaps where you don't have a central infrastructure and you know the larger banks are not addressing it themselves. So let me go through data, payments, and banking as a service, which are the three categories of open finance that that, that I think of. On data. In more developed markets, it's usually used for some kind of personal financial management, budgeting app, basic reconciliation, right? And that works in Southeast Asia, but actually 90 plus percent of Bronca's transaction volume for data APIs is for some kind of credit scoring use case. So it's allowing Rachel to share her bank account information because she's applying for a loan or whether she's an SME or a consumer, or needs to do some identity verification as part of a credit origination process. And she can now do that instantly versus sending notarized certificate of employment and like notarized bank statements that are printed out at two or $3 a page, which are like real world situations today in, in Southeast Asia. So that's on data. So data starts, it solves a credit scoring problem. For payments, 
80% of e-commerce transactions in Indonesia and the Philippines are processed using bank transfer, some version of a funds transfer account, you know, customer account into merchant account. And then there's a reconciliation process after the fact. So enabling PISP or the you know, payment initiation using open finance is actually solving efficiency and cost challenges that are actually the most trusted and most common payment method today. So that's for payment. And then there's a whole other set of use cases for B2B. So, you know, corporate payments for disbursements or for supplier payments cross-border, which are even is arguably an even bigger opportunity. The third category is banking as a service, which is an overused term, but really we're thinking about how do you have standard APIs for things like account opening, loan origination, credit card issuance. And that gets really exciting because you change the economics of acquiring a new account holder if you're a bank. So this becomes very sexy for a bank in an archipelago like the Philippines or Indonesia, where they can now reach a consumer base that they would previously serve through branches and you know, an agent network, physical agent network, they can now, their network of agents can be third-party apps that have plugged in that API and are now doing account onboarding on behalf of the bank. So now the cost of acquisition goes way down and they can do, that, that partner can do account servicing, they can supply data back to the bank. And now you can build a whole ecosystem around a customer segment that you would have neglected previously. So that's what excites me about kind of real world commercial use cases in, in Southeast Asia for data, for payments and for banking as a service. These three categories of data, payments and banking as a service are obviously where some of the most exciting changes are happening. But where else are you seeing open banking or open finance, as you prefer, shake things up? So some of the newer use cases we see are non-financial data, still serving credit scoring, but non-financial data. So particularly e-commerce data, both for consumer and for seller. So what am I buying as a consumer? How frequently am I buying it? You can do all sorts of analysis on that. We have more players here that are looking at SME data and also employment data. So tapping into whether it's tax authorities information or, or, or payroll providers and being able to provide verified employment data. And there's a number of use cases that are emerging from that. That's data. What about in payments? You know, six months ago, I would have said there's a big opportunity for crypto payments. Obviously, we're in a bit of a crypto bear market right now. So just usage and transaction volume is much lower. Um, but I think, you know, as the market swings back, there will be a lot more kind of crypto to fiat, fiat to crypto on and off ramps and enabling things like aggregating your kind of fiat portfolio alongside your crypto portfolio. The other area within payments is consumer remittances, right? So the Philippines has, I think, 11 million Filipinos living abroad, whether they are on ships or whether they are domestic workers or healthcare workers or hospitality. They are sending you know, money back every two weeks, every month. Your t total transaction cost is typically 8 to 10%, which is terrible for a low-wage earner who's apart from their family. Um, so enabling open finance, enabled banking and financial services for that overseas Filipino or overseas Indonesian, I think is really valuable for financial inclusion and, and, and economic empowerment. And we're just starting to see the, the, the benefits of that. I'm seeing more and more financial service providers, banks and e-wallets that are designing digital financial services specifically for the overseas demographic. So in the Philippines, 
Um, one of the six licensed digital banks is called Overseas Filipino Bank, OF Bank, uh, which is entirely served to provide a local peso Philippines bank account for the overseas workers and make it easier for them to move money from their their country of work, whether it's UAE or Singapore, Hong Kong, into their Philippine bank account that their family members can access, and then building you know insurance and other ancillary services around that. That's one example. We're seeing more and more examples of credit and savings products that are designed for overseas workers, whether it's for seafarers, right? So Philippines and Indonesia, I think, provide the vast majority of crewing of shipping and, and bulk container vessels. And so providing savings and credit products that serve their needs um, and giving them liquidity too as they're at sea and making sure that they can get cash to their family when they need it. Those are a couple examples. Thank you so much, Todd. That was super interesting. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, SAP Pioneer. Rock solid technology, bold creativity. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.